what AI does is imitate the temp. It's, it's counterfeit art. It's just mimics. But something that purely mimics can't actually do the thing we want out of art, which is to give us something like original and interesting and something that's sort of like in, in a way based on experience. This is Joseph Ring. I'm a cattle feedlot operator in Northern Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we have Eric Huell back on the podcast. Eric is as prolific and insightful as ever, and I'm really excited for you to check it out. Uh, we are moving into a new studio. If you are interested in hiring me to interview one of your loved ones about their life experiences, go to store.articulate.ventures to find out more about the legacy interviews. All right, without further ado, let's head into this interview with Eric Huell. Eric Huell, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be returning. Man, your book has caught the world on fire. I, When we first were talking, the book had just come out in like preprint. And what is the world of being an established, recognized author like for you? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I mean, I would say I sort of have a complex relationship with the publishing industry. I mean, I like like every big industry. Um, you know, it has its sort of structures that you have to learn, learn how to navigate. And, uh, I grew up in an independent bookstore that my mother owned. So I sold books my, my whole life, but, um, lately I've switched to writing, uh, online and I, I write a subset called the intrinsic perspective. And the, uh, I'll just be honest and say that the amount of like immediate feedback and excitement that I get has been vastly greater than a traditionally than having traditionally published a book, despite the fact that it was a wonderful experience traditionally publishing a book. It's been a year now. Paperback is just coming out. You know, it was. I, I still receive emails about it from from people who found it and read it and, is, and are like, "I've never read anything like this. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Are you doing a next one?" But in terms of like the pure immediate feedback and and ease. Uh, of uh, online writing versus traditional publishing, it means that I think I'm going to do a lot more online writing in the future. Yeah, there was just so much um, that a book publishing company used to do for you that now is 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 unnecessary. Like everything, I was actually just did a legacy interview with a guy that his entire career for 25 years was typesetting. And then, you know, now all of a sudden you don't really need typesetters anymore. And then for a while, the book company's job was to get your ideas out to, to people. But if you're going to get a book deal now, you got to come to the publisher and be like, look, I have 10,000 followers or I have 5,000 Substack subscribers to even get them to, to look at you. Yeah. And um, I actually have a post coming up breaking down the, 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 the publishing industry as it currently functions. And one thing to note about it is that it's a number of very hard steps. And so and the probability of making it past those steps, every one of those steps is, is quite low. And so I think my suspicion is, is that, you know, the majority of even good, what one might just consider publishable manuscripts in, in the United States essentially goes mostly the majority of it is unpublished. And if you look at like numbers, um, the same thing that's been happening for movies, like movies are now remakes of remakes. Uh, you know, this, everyone sort of has experienced this, but you can actually go and look at the top 10, you know, most grossing movies and check to see if they're part of franchising franchises. And you can really see that it's, it's significantly increasing in liter in literature. There's a similar phenomenon where essentially the rich are getting richer in that it's a very small number of authors 
now, smaller than it's ever been, who are making like top 100 bestseller lists. And it's almost always someone who's been there before. And the situation was very different even in like 1980. If you if you go back to like 1980, uh, you, you will see that actually a lot of the people making the lists were, were first time authors. So it's been very interesting to sort of get an exposure to that world. Like the book did well. I, as I said, I, I received notes from, from, from readers. I'm very happy with it, but I'm also kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm not sure how this industry is going to kind of keep going. And if there's a huge amount of, it does, doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of energy in the industry right now. Um, not that there couldn't be in the future, but it just seems that that way right now. And to me, it seems like a huge amount of the energy is actually on in, in writing online and the ease of it and the ease at which you can build an audience and sort of the power of it, um, you know, at, w- w- within six to eight months of writing online, I was be able to like put out a short story, right? Which you would think like a short story, right? Like on onto my Substack, And I think it ended up getting like 10,000 views or something like that. And that might not sound like that impressive, but for a literary short story, to be able to do something like that for a literary short story, I mean, outside of maybe being published in The New Yorker, that's about as much as you could possibly expect from sort of the traditional literary industry, um, again, outside of the very, very big names. And it's like, okay, so so if that's something that I'm able to build that audience within you know six to eight months, um, it seems as if this is where things are going to inevitably move as sort of market forces come into play. And as people read more and more on their phones and that sort of thing. When you go out to buy a book, do you buy it in paperback or you buy a hard copy or how do you make the, how do you make the decision? Oh, I, I love buying hard copies because to me, um, and, and this is why I still see a future in books. I'm not one of those people who thinks the publishing industry is totally doomed or anything like that. You know, uh, to me, a book is something that you put into your, into your library and the, the library is, and not everyone feels this way, but but I very much feel this way. The library is sort of like an aesthetic object, right? It's almost like an art collection. Um, that doesn't mean that every book has to be like perfectly preserved. Most of my books are quite well read, but you know, they I, I, I like getting the hard covers because they have pretty, uh, you know, pretty covers, and you can kind of line them up nice and and so on. So uh, I'm definitely more of a hardcover fan. I was, uh, you know, exclusively paperback when I was younger. So I grew up in a house where my father collected books. He has more books than Thomas Jefferson had at Monticello. So books were everywhere. And to me, they became almost like tchotchke-esque, like where, where it's just like there's so many books. This is like an incomprehensible problem to most people. But if you've ever lived in a world where your hallways in your old country farmhouse now have two sets of bookshelves on either side... And you're, you know, a six foot four guy like myself. Now, all of a sudden, the house is very small and the <laughs> stacks of books are everywhere. So I was always like, I, I want paperback books. And here's why. Because if I love the book, I want to be able to easily give it away. And if yeah. I hate the book, I want to be easy to throw away. And so like the value of having like some long term thing. But ever since we started this book club, I started realizing like there's actually some books that I want to hold on and I want to hold on to them for a really long time. So I'd rather have a hundred hardback books that I love than thousands and thousands of, of other kinds of books, like softback or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And the book is, you know, books are still just beautiful and gorgeous physical objects. Like, um, you know, I'm just delighted by the, the job they did 
with, with with sort of the cover design and and how gorgeous it looks and it's also something that like to be honest i'm i'm i, I you know it's like you can get a million readers and that's fine but like you can also eventually one day like my kids will read it and that to me is like worth like a million readers right because they get an insight onto their dad at like a really deep psychological level that they just would never really have have access to so um and i think that that's sort of the power of the physical book is handing down an object like that. Yeah, I feel that deeply with the podcast that uh, it, it's actually, if I give all of these away, right, the, the podcast makes virtually no money. And uh, but like now my daughter, if something were to happen to me, as long as she's got access to these files, she can see her dad talking with hundreds of people. And that's just something that like, it's invaluable to me The the ability to have captured that and pass it on is is deeply, deeply valuable. So for a book, I think uh, you can imagine that won't just go to my your children, it could go to your great grandchildren, right, and still have some relevance to them and have them some insight into what the world was like back when what was his name? Great granddad. What? what Eric? What? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I honestly think uh, for all the lamentation around cell phones and so on, uh, the number of the amount of data that kids of this generation uh, will have, particularly kids of, of millennials, will have about what their lives were actually like because because quite frankly you don't really remember your childhood i mean anyone who really claims they, they really remember their childhood uh you know it's like those memories are very faulty very easy to manipulate sometimes you remember things people told you that never really happened and you also it's also very difficult to kind of figure out what was going on and i think it becomes easy as you separate from childhood uh to to forget that like generally parents love their kids and you know, and, and they have to, cause that's, you know, how you can get through a, a 3 a.m. wake up. Right. Um, and, and most kids are sort of raised in love in that, in that sense, in that there is sort of, there is, there has to be love there in order for the kid to even like survive. Right. Um, and, and that's something that's really easy to forget as an adult until you have kids. Uh, but, you know, I think for this generation, they're going to be able to look back and be like, look at all these videos of me, like, look at the stuff that we did, look at all these photos of me, right? Um, and it's just gonna, they're gonna have a sense of continuance about themselves that I actually think will be psychologically healthy. I think it's one of the rare cases of technology really seriously adding, adding something in. Oh, that's brilliant. See, because when I think about it, I, um, I have to resist the urge to try and capture the moments that my daughter has on camera, because I find myself then instead of looking at Violet, I'm looking at my camera and I find that like, I want to record everything. But then you think about like, well, how much time will I actually spend going back and looking at these things? And as a parent, you know, you can't even make it to the end of the day. You're lying in bed as you're after your child's asleep and you're looking at photographs from earlier in the day. So who knows? But it's it's interesting to, that you have a positive spin there because that's my my natural reaction is this is negative. Yeah, I think it's I I think it's you know obviously you know when you're with the kid there is always that instinct. But like I think in the end, particularly for them, it's going to be something that they that they treasure, like getting that 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 
that info dump. I mean, we just think about it, like how, how much delight does the average person get when they're shown a photo of them as a kid? And for like our generation, we get like, you know, some grainy printed out like Polaroid of like, okay, it was me like in a tree. I guess I look pretty happy, you know. Kind of looks yellowish now. Yeah, it's like, like was everybody it's yellow? faded. Um, but, you know, they're going to get, you know, just like high resolution, uh, really, really good video. And I think that that is actually going to end up being a, a good thing. I, I honestly think it's, it's hard to, it'll be hard to look at your parents when you're 25 and be like, oh, you, you, you know, maybe my childhood wasn't the best or, or whatever. Right. And it's like, yeah, but here's like, here's like a thousand videos. And in all of them, we're having the best time. Right. Um, and I think you it's just harder the- to have that belief. One of the weirdest things about the ubiquity of photographs and these things is like, like I have no video or photographs of my dad crying uncontrollably for a completely irrational reason, right? So I grew up in my knowledge of my father was completely rational, entirely stoic. And as far as I know, he has always been this way since the beginning of my existence, right? Which I don't know anything outside of that. But you also will be able, you know, my Violet's going to be able to pass down to her children photos of her or video of just her being completely irrational. And I wonder if that humanizes them or what that does to that relationship, because it will be different. You've never been able to do this before. Yeah, I do. I I think it'll be psychologically healthy. I think that there's always this sort of like fog of war that surrounds (laughs) like human relationships you know it's like and 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 like and and it's really you have a really tough time about like what was my relationship to my parents actually like when I was seven years old right like I have I have my memories I have you know my, my mother's memories my father's memories I have different you know different uh different stories some relatives said different things right it's like so what what is that actually the relationship right and this is like this sort of amorphous very difficult to figure out thing and it allows us to project on our parents sort of masks about uh, often of how we ourselves feel right and um and and i think that 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 is harder when you just have so much sort of like actual on the ground evidence of what stuff was actually like and i think it's good i think humans are I, I think humans are very prone to um, sort of falsification. We're very prone to sort of making up and spinning our own narratives, particularly self-serving narratives. And, you know, the the treasure trove of videographic evidence will be so vast that I think it's going to be very hard for someone to to not understand the the complexities of life, right? It'll be very hard for somebody to say like, oh, my mother never really you know, love me or something like that. It's like, well, here's a thousand videos of her just squealing with delight whenever you did anything. So it's like, you know, you, you have to understand that people are multifaceted. And I think that that's healthy in the end. So we've been talking about memories, but I think it's actually a, a very interesting thing to ask someone like you, what is a memory? Mm, that's that, Well, it's, it's certainly a, a tough question. I mean, I got my PhD in neuroscience and, um, you know, I, I would I would at varying points sort of ask professors <laughs> precisely that. Right. And for a long time in neuroscience, it was thought that memories were essentially some sort of discrete um, symbol or a record of an event that was sort of processed, perhaps in a way very similar to a to a modern computer. And this is probably the pr- predominant view throughout even the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Now we have another analogy in neuroscience, 
Um, and that analogy is of artificial neural networks, which are were originally inspired by how the brain functions. So perhaps in a way, thinking about your brain as an artificial neural network is a lot more accurate than thinking about your brain as, say, a laptop, right? Very, the, the, much more accurate and, and very different. And when we look at artificial neural networks and we look at what memories are, we see that memories are like distributed changes in a vast web of, of very fine-grained connectivity. And pinning down where almost anything is, is extremely difficult. Uh, artificial neural networks are notorious for being what's called black boxes in that they, they work. They work very well off, often, but no one can really tell you how they work. Um, and that's probably because the input-output behavior that they're enacting isn't really compressible in the way that would engender understanding, right? They're not actually just implementing some simple algorithm that you can figure out. They're implementing an algorithm that's as complex as their now trillions of, of parameters. And the human brain is very similar. We've got trillions of, of parameters. And, um, and what that means is that pinning down, you know, exactly what what a memory is or where a memory is in the brain is extremely difficult. I mean, I personally think that neuroscientists perhaps more standard neuroscientists who are still you know, very interested in things like what's the biological basis of memory, as if this is sort of like a really discrete question that we can ask um, with a discrete answer. I think that they're going to end up being sorely disappointed. I think memory ends up being very similar to artificial neural network where it's sort of distributed across uh, the entirety of the thing. And, you know, that's, that's a very, um, that's, Opaque. I don't, it's, I, it's, it, yeah, exactly. It's very, very fuzzy, right? So, because if I think about what you're saying, I'm imagining you saying, well, your memory is stored in your brain somewhere in between the connections between things that happened as your memory was forming. Yeah. Is, it's like, is, it's like, imagine, imagine you have tr the, the, the finest interlacing of, sort of synaptic branches you can imagine, right? So just this immensely fine, fine, complex web. And every perception and experience and at every moment of your life, this web is subtly changing, right? Certain certain sort of points of contact are becoming stronger, or denser, other points are sort of lessening and becoming weaker, right? And this is exactly how like an artificial neural network gets gets trained, right? It, it has a huge number of of you know artificial neurons and those artificial neurons have connections and those connections grow weaker and stronger depending on how it's how it's being trained but when you sit down to ask a question like okay this is an artificial neural network that you know knows what a car is or something like that if you sit down and you ask where how does it know that how does it know what a car is how does a self-driving car know what a car is that is a very very tough question to answer and that's in systems that we have perfect access to Right, because you can open up the hood of an artificial neural network and you see this dense cluster of connections, but you have perfect access. Now in the brain, we have terrible access and it's even bigger, right? <laughs> so, so it's like neuroscientists sort of have um, sort of like the worst of all possible worlds um, in that they're dealing with things that are probably, that probably trend towards being fundamentally black boxes and are even more difficult to assess and get a handle on um, than art, like artificial neural networks where we have perfect, where we have perfect access. And this is why I think, you know, a lot of neuroscience, um, is, is noise. I, I don't think, I don't think the majority of neuroscience 
will sort of particularly like cognitive neuroscience, not stuff about like how neurons work at the molecular level, but like higher level stuff about how cognition occurs in the brain. That stuff gets continuously rewritten every couple of decades. And the reason why is, is, is precisely this. Yeah. I mean, you, you actually, I was going to bring up the article that you had talked about, um, about if you tried to push against the standard understanding of neuroscience, if you took something like depression and you said, ah, I don't think, I think we're over-prescribing, the, or we're, we're, we're over-diagnosing the number of people that we think have depression, and these are the reasons why, and you kind of um, illuminated just how difficult it would be to push back on standard accepted understandings of psychology and then that that kind of cascade on, which was like, you know, if this is well, I'll let you describe it. The, the article. What were you trying to say in that article? Yeah, um, and, and and for those who don't know, so this is this is referring to an essay I wrote recently for my Substack, um, and the essay is called "Corporations Versus the Demarcation Problem." And the idea is is that um, corporations are sort of now getting into the business, and now even the government getting into the business of sort of regulating what counts as scientific misinformation. But the the problem with this is that what counts as scientific misinformation certainly changes over time. And particularly when experts disagree, like not, you know, random people on the street, but like an actual expert in the field, and they strongly disagree with the consensus of their field uh, within science itself, that should be sort of an allowable phenomenon. And differentiating between when expert level criticism is valid or invalid um, is something called the demarcation problem, which in philosophy is asking what's the difference between pseudoscience and science. And all the sort of great minds of of philosophy, um, uh, Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions, Popper with his notion of falsification, Lakatos, kind of a a mix of the two, uh, all these great philosophers never really came up with a very good answer to what counts as pseudoscience versus science and how to adjudicate really fine-grained uh, debates. Um, and therefore, we should be suspicious of asking if a corporate corporation or a government or like a committee can, can do the same because um, it seems as if they, they have to figure out something that these some of the great geniuses of the 20th century really couldn't figure out. I mean, unless they take the more lenient route of saying, you know, we'll only go after the really, really bad cases of it. And that's actually something that I I think is fine. But the issue becomes the the second you're really talking about, uh, you know, real expert level disagreements where people are citing a lot of research, right, then suddenly you're you're getting very close to this question of demarcation about distinguishing science and non-science. Yeah. And this opened up a lot of uh, concepts for me. So I worked in the biotech industry, in the ag biotech, and basically anybody that came up against GMOs or accepted science, we understand how they work. And if you are saying they're not safe, then you're outside of the consensus and likely somebody that uh, is going to get pushed out of this argument. And you start to think about like, well, how do you have a discussion where the people that believe, let's say in the safety of GMOs, how how do you create a situation where they're free to be able to explore that they may be wrong without putting the body of work that they've done in jeopardy? Because I felt like when I was at Monsanto, I, I believed that GMOs were safe. I think that the people that were um, doing the science thought that they were safe. But like to even open that door was such a threat to them and their science and their work 
that they the door was just never even cracked open it was it would be um extremely bad form for people to really entertain those conversations yeah and and i i you know personally i i think gmos are quite safe but i am what i don't think should happen is that you know, powerful entities should essentially uh, if, if someone came up with like a really detailed, like if someone who was in the industry, say broke ranks and came up with like a really detailed high level criticism of it. Now, maybe this person is totally wrong that that's that's in fact more than likely. Right. Uh, that they're totally wrong. But the question is, what do we do with this sort of like scientific monograph, right, that has all the sort of trappings of science, right? It's citing high-level sources, it's engaged in in in-depth argumentation, right? And then you have to be like, well, I can distinguish between that scientific monograph and sort of like a correct scientific monograph. And it's like, well, under under sort of what pretext, because you're not doing it off of whether or not this person, say, has a PhD in the field, right? That that that's actually a reasonable criteria, right? If it's if it's a if it's a random person on the street screaming that vaccines cause autism and they have absolutely no academic or intellectual background and are not, you know, have no knowledge of the science, then I think we can safely say, okay, this is a very easy case of demarcation. But when we're dealing with cases of, you know, extremely uh, high level, expert level criticism, it seems as if you sort of have to have already a priori solved the problem. But of course, the, the issue is, is that these people are criticizing scientific consensus. So you can't simply rely on well, the scientific consensus goes the other way. It's like, well, but sometimes scientific consensus shifts and sometimes expert experts uh, disagree quite extremely with the consensus of their colleagues. And I actually used myself as an example in this essay over a matter that I think is trivial compared to how politicized these debates normally get. Uh, and this is that I actually think that a lot of neuroscience, something we were talking about just now, is somewhat bunk. I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of neuroscientists are somewhere between um, just wasting time and like defrauding the public of tax dollars, right? And that's a pretty extreme opinion. Most most people in the field don't have that. Like I'm, I'm quite willing to say I, I could very well be wrong. Uh, but I think it's a, I, I think I can, I can argue that. And in fact, I'm going to have a book coming out from Simon & Schuster where I talk a little bit about this at, um, at some point in the next couple of years. Um, where, where, where I talk about sort of what neuroscience, what needs to change about neuroscience to get right and how a lot of neuroscience is not even wrong. Like it's just stuff that's never going to be reproduced. But that puts me in the position of being directly against scientific consensus. I mean, like I'm, I'm, it's, I'm directly against the, the scientific consensus. And I think that it would be a mistake to say that some outside forces should sort of adjudicate such disputes, even if no one's suggesting that they are, right? I'm certainly not not claiming that they are, but in terms of sort of like a thought experiment where it, it seems pretty politically neutral, um, it seems as if then in this case, almost no one thinks that, you know, like the, the book that I write shouldn't be published or something like that, right? If I'm just critiquing neuroscience. But then the question is just, okay, so to what degree does politicization sort of change your opinion on that? And I think the answer should be, maybe it does, but, but, but not like a complete 180. Well, in your example in that article, all about depression was actually like, I, I, I spoke with my wife about it at length. So you basically said, if you wanted to push back on it, this is the criteria, you know, you'd have to have this level of expertise, you'd have to have these counter examples, you'd have to have tried to lay it out. And oh, lo and behold, this guy did that, right? Or, or the other example, like sleep research, 
you know, seems like this is settled. And as soon as people start uh, really breaking into it, maybe not quite as settled as it was before, but there's an entire establishment around people to say, um, no, we already know what the truth is and we're not, we're not changing it. Yeah. And I think some of that is that I, I, I think scientists are correct to almost never pay attention to what anyone else in the public thinks about their field. I know that that's like kind of that that's both elitist and, and crazy, but science sort of needs to be self self insulating in that way. But on the other hand, there are plenty of times when scientists themselves within the field, like people who have every expert credential you could ever ask of someone break very significantly right from the consensus of their colleagues. And I think those are cases like when that is happening, it doesn't mean that that person's correct. In fact, I think most of the time they're wrong and most of the time scientific consensus is correct, but they should absolutely sort of be allowed to make that argument. And also it's, it's very difficult to convince anyone in the sciences of literally anything um, it's sort of like steering the discussion on social media or something like that, right? It's like, how difficult is it to steer Twitter? Very difficult, right? Like at most, you can sort of nudge it in certain directions if you're if you're very good and highly engaged. And similarly with science, right? Even if you want to sort of engage and not go to the public, engage just at the, le- at the level of traditional academic discourse, changing anything within science is very difficult. And all you can sort of do is nudge it along. Um, in, in what are hopefully the right directions. But so, so I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for, for, for people who sort of break with what might be called the expert consensus and sort of make what also might be called an appeal to the public where you say, listen, I don't take these people too seriously. And, and that's exactly what, you know, I'm, I'm planning to do with neuroscience, which luckily I think no one will get mad at and, and no one will care and there won't be any actual sort of political blowback. Uh, oh, I don't know, man. Yeah, You're going to be touching the third. Like, I see this go on. So um, in the registered dietitian world, or right, where you have these like people that say, hey, we have a license. We understand how this works. But just like neuroscience, I think the science of food and how that all works is ideas stacked on top of ideas stacked on top of ideas. And they're like abstract. And, you know, if you looked at any one level it would you you couldn't find any solid answers and yet when you look at it as a collective they say ah well collectively we know these things but if you try and go into the rd world and say even what i've said right there that that i think it is about as much of a science as economics is right it's just theory upon theory upon theory that uh that makes you persona non grata you're not allowed to be there and i can't imagine that people that went through to get their phd's in neuroscience are going to take this lying down <laughs> yeah i think i think you, you know the, the the more basic uh the, the the research gets and the less applied i think the less sort of like inherently po- political or angry people get like no one no one really cares if someone else is yelling at physicists about string theory and how it's unfalsifiable Right. It just it doesn't seem, you know, quite that important. I think where the rubber beats the road is that, you know, a lot of neuroscience bleeds into psychiatry and it bleeds into um, also like how we conceptualize ourselves. Um, For for me, the big dark horse within neuroscience is consciousness. We don't have a good scientific understanding of consciousness. We don't know how the brain generates a stream of of conscious experience. It seems like the main goal of the brain is to generate a stream of of conscious experience for most organisms. Um, That's certainly what, what, what our brains spend most of their time doing. And we simply don't have a good theory of that. And so I think there's a very good case to be made, therefore, that neuroscience is pre-paradigmatic um, in a way that, say, maybe standard 
you know, m- molecular biology uh, is not uh, in that we have sort of, you know, we, we, we know how DNA works and how it gets read and, and sort of this, the, the, the broadest level, the broadest outline, we, we have those sort of theories. And we have theories like the theory of evolution by natural selection, which explains so much within within biology itself, but we don't have a good theory of consciousness. And therefore, I think there's a very good case to be made, particularly within neuroscience, that it's a pre-paradigmatic field and everyone's sort of just running around like a chicken with their head cut off and sort of doing doing somewhat random things. And um, and 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 we sort of have this mess of, of a field as a result. I, I actually, um, so I had Michael Levin on, which crazily enough, we get done with the interview um, first or second time. And I was like, Michael, you know who you need to meet? You need to meet Eric Well. I really would suggest <laughs> that. He was like, meet him. I was on the hiring committee at Tufts when uh, to bring him in. I know exactly who he is. And I was like, oh. So one of the things that he really has woken me up to in reading his stuff and uh, and others is that as a Westerner, we have this very strong sense that causation happens at whatever the lowest building block is that you can find. Like whatever, if, if you can break a molecule down into atoms and if you can break it atoms down into quarks and if you can just keep going down, eventually you will reach the bottom. And once you get to the bottom, then you'll be able to figure out the why that constructs all of this. So it's almost like we got to keep digging down and then once we know that with the furthest down, then we can draw the causation arrow the other direction. And his work, and I think you and him have done a lot in this area, I see it, I see these concepts of, of causation showing up in your writing as well, is that uh, causation doesn't necessarily happen at the base, and it doesn't necessarily happen at the largest macro level. It could be that causation happens somewhere in the middle and goes out in, in other directions. Talk a little yeah. bit about your discoveries of causal emergence and how, how, how one thinks in this way, which it's different than our natural propensity. Yeah, so this 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 sort of little mini growing subfield um, has has an interesting history. Um, my 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 co-authors and I, when I was in graduate school, published uh, the f- first sort of paper on this. Um, not really the the very first paper, like in in the in the general direction, but in what I think is going to end up being the more um, accepted answer to to these questions about reduction and causation. And so on, which do have bearings on topics that people care about beyond just, you know, philosophy graduate students, right? This has bearings on things like free will and responsibility for your own actions and things like that. And, um, you know, originally I wanted to do research into consciousness. And what I found is that consciousness is an v- incredibly difficult question to make scientific progress on. As in, there is a reason we do not have a theory in that it is incredibly hard. I think harder than even the most high level theoretical physics to really make any sort of advance in in un- the understanding of consciousness. But we, we had sort of been developing all these mathematical techniques to think about this issue and looking around at other problems, um, there's this question of emergence. How does emergence occur in physical systems? Um, and this is often sort of related to consciousness, but, but not always. We can think of emergence in, in a totally non-mental way. And we ended up coming up with some math that we thought well described what was going on with with emergence and countering what might be called uh, the reductionist assumption, precisely what you described, which is this idea that uh, if if we if we ask sort of 
what's the actual cause of say the next state of the universe or your own behavior, right? But 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 whichever. Uh, that answer will be down at the level of the smallest microphysics. So it'll be like, well, listen, we, we had a, a bunch of atoms and they were bumping into one another um, and or or the wave function evolved, whatever your final microphysical level it is. Maybe it's quark clouds, maybe it's strings. But we had a bunch of atoms that they're, they're bouncing uh, uh, against one another. And then, you know, we, as a consequence, we have this this future state. And the idea is, is that, well, essentially everything that's happening is happening simply because of this lowest level of description and all the higher levels of description, which we think of like chairs and uh, microphones and, and, and paintings and, and us ourselves are essentially illusory in that they're, they don't actually have any real causal power. They're what um, a philosopher might call an epiphenomenon. There's sort of like a shadow or like, you know, the engine coming out of a, the steam coming out of a steam engine. And, uh, but it turns out that when you actually do the math on this, uh, it's just not true. You can take a measure of causation and people have advanced a number of measures of causation, uh, across, across the years, across the decades, people have come up with mathematical definitions of causation and you can take those definitions of causation and you can apply them in simple model systems where you understand everything. And what you'll find is that under certain conditions, uh, actually the causation will be greater at a macro scale than a micro scale even for the exact same event, as in like the the coarse grain of a system is better at capturing the causation than some fine grain of a system. And this means that reduction and reductionism is not always the best choice for understanding why or how something happened. Um, instead, we sort, there's sort of like a multi-layered conception wherein generally there's some scale that's more important. Some scales are more important than others, uh, but there's no sort of one perfect final scale like the micro scale. Um, and again, we can kind of just show this directly mathematically. And we, we originally published this paper back in 2013 showing this, and we used just one measure of causation. But now it's been shown you know, because you might say, well, maybe there's something very particular about this one measure of causation. Maybe it has some sort of mathematical assumption behind it that leads to this sort of counterintuitive result. And it turns out, no, in fact, pretty much any measure of causation that you look at will give you this result. And almost any conceivable measure of causation will give you this result. And the reason why is that causation is essentially the, the inverse of uncertainty. And the uncertainty decreases as you go up in scale. And I'll give a very quick example of that. Imagine that we have like Laplace's demon over here who wants to predict what, what, what Vance is going to be doing in 10 hours, right? Um, or let's say 12 hours, right? What, what, what is Vance going to be doing, right? And he, he, he gets busy calculating all your, your atoms and exactly how they're going to move. And he comes up with this huge list of very unlikely transition probabilities where he's like, well, you could be in atomic state 10,591,000,000. You could be in atomic state 10,952,000,000. You could be in, right, and you imagine this huge list of these possible atomic states that you could be in and all these tiny little transition probabilities between them, right? But now I come in and I say, okay, but I'm going to predict, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to answer it up at a macro level. I'm going to predict that Vance is going to be asleep. He's asleep, right? Okay, well, what's the probability of my prediction? let's say you're, you're, you're a pretty normal guy, then the probability of the prediction might be that uh, you're almost certainly going to be asleep, right? It's like 95% of the time you're asleep by that, by that 
time of, of night, right? Or 99% of the time or what have you. So what have we done? We've transformed uncertainty into certainty by moving up to a higher level or higher scale of description. And we think that that's what fundamentally underlies this, this sort of uh, common sense notion of emergence. And um, it's a very sort of powerful argument because it shows both that uh, that the macro scales of the world, which by the way, most science has to do with macro scales, right? Not microphysics. Cells are macro scale entities. Genes are micro scale entities, right? Scientists talk about as these about these things all the time as if they have real causal power. Uh, and this shows that they do have real causal power. And the way that they do it is via this sort of noise reduction. And so in a sense, it's sort of like an unsexy answer, which is perfect because I think that if we had like a magic, if we, if the answer was like there's some sort of magic or new laws or something like that, we should be much more skeptical. But this is a much more sort of like like state answer uh, that's just like, well, it's just about noise reduction. And uh, but 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 it has a lot of teeth as an argument. I think it's very hard to to, to get out of. Um, and I'm also going to be talking about that in in this in this upcoming book and about how that sort of reconceptualizes our notion both of science and its drive towards reductionism and also things like uh, free will. Um, not to, not that I think that it's a perfect argument for for like a knockdown argument for having free will, but I think it has a, uh, it pertains to the debate quite significantly. I can see that completely, right? It, it opens up the door to say, um, because the, the the free will, and I think we've even talked about this in our first discussion about, about uh, how the argument that people make about, well, it's either you or it's not you making these decisions. It's one or the other. And just how like overly simplified that explanation that I, I never feel satisfied um, when somebody says, no, you don't have free will. You're just kind of a, you know, you're just a, um, sitting behind the camera lenses watching these things occur. And it's actually just a manifestation of randomness and the way your body is going to react. If you put causal, if you can change the causational flow to either go that way or that way, it opens up the door to being a more, I may not have a firmer answer on whether or not I have free will, but at least it opens up the space that makes it feel like a more robust discussion. Yeah, there's basically two, well, there's kind of three, but like there's basically two arguments against free will. So so the, the way one should think about it is that everyone has sort of a naive belief that they have free will and are the cause of their own actions. So we should think of, of, of free will as like a, a negative thesis. So we should think of it as, okay, well, what are the arguments against, against free will? And we should start with those. And uh, those can basically be broken down into two camps, one of which is the could you have done otherwise camp. So it's like, well, could you have done otherwise, right? And I actually think causal emergence, this theory of causation, doesn't have that much to say about that. Uh, it, it, maybe it does in like a clever way, but, um, but I think where it has a much more obvious impact is on the second argument against free will, which is, well, you didn't really do anything. It was your atoms that did it, right? You are just sort of, you, you have some microphysical state. That microphysical state is doing things and causing the next future states. And that's where all the sort of the causation is. And so therefore you're not really doing anything, right? It's your atoms that are doing things. Uh, and that's a, that's a, you know, a legitimate sort of argument against, against free will. But what causal emergence shows is that it's, un, it's probably, probably untrue. I mean, I should always, I try to always be careful. This is stuff we show in simple mathematical models. We don't show it in physics, right? So it's like, 
well, this, so it's like this argument against free will doesn't apply in very simple mathematical models, depending on some context of how the model actually works. But uh, then the question is, can it actually apply to the real world? If it did, then I think it would, um, you know, sort of obliterate that particular uh, anti-free will objection. So that's, that's good, right? Like you, 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 you knock out one of the legs at least, and at least we can sort of be uh, our, what might be, what might be described as sort of the macro scale descriptions, which we ourselves are macro scale descriptions compared to microphysics uh, can be the cause of things and uh, do have sort of real irreducible causal power. I mean, the, the biggest challenge with the um, shaking up the snow globe by saying, Hey, the causation doesn't always start from this reductionist thing is that then it throws all of the solid answers that you thought you had about the world in into into question and then it becomes very difficult to like it's a little bit like adding um you know a variable in at the end and 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 then saying like okay now every single equation has to come through with that variable in it so th there is something that feels unsettling about saying causation doesn't run one direction it could run in multiple directions or for multiple reasons yeah it's 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 more like causation doesn't doesn't automatically uh occur solely at the at the micro scale of whatever system you're describing Ma macro scale mesoscale level events in the system can have real irreducible causal power that you can't find down at the at the lower at the lower level scales despite the fact that those higher levels are completely derivable from the lower levels but the causation isn't right so um so Within science, the way we should think about that is that actually most of the time um, in plenty of system architectures, you don't see causal emergence, right? It depends on how much sort of noise there is in your system and how the system is set up. And so actually we, we, what causal emergence says, the theory says, is that we should lean towards reductionism. So in general, if you don't know how something is, is working, you should reduce and see if you can sort of take it apart. But it just means that that's not always the winning strategy. In fact, sometimes the sort of the winning strategy in order to understand the causation in the system better is to actually group stuff together and go up the, in scale, right? It's just that uh, you, basically more things have to go right in order to move up the scale than down the scale. So actually, funnily enough, even despite, you know, um, so a lot of people don't understand this, but that actually means that causal emergence tells us that we should have an inbuilt preference for reductionism, it's just not always true. And I think that that's probably the right answer. Like that, that, that seems sort of, sort of right to me. It justifies how reductionist science normally is. But I point out all the time that science is actually not that reductionist. In fact, scientists, what scientists generally do is they find a favorite spatial temporal scale and think about their system at that scale and don't think about stuff below it or above it. And an example of this would be like neuroscientists trying to understand the brain. What do they look at? Neurons, right? They don't look at quarks. They don't look at atoms, right? They could, right? Like you, like like why stop? Why did you stop? What? Why did you stop there? And the answer most neuroscientists could give is like I don't know, right? But well, because the human mind can only handle so many details, right? It's like yeah. why does a macroeconomist decide to say that they're not a microeconomist, right? Well, it's because. If I try and factor in all those things, my brain will explode and then I won't feel like I'm making progress, which there again comes back to my feeling on RDs, which is the their philosophy is like, yeah, but if we abstracted it into all of these other domains, you know, whether it's 
chemistry or biochemistry or anatomy or, you know, calories, like the food chemistry. Um, if I, if I break it out so much, then I, I won't be able to make any progress. And that actually may be what, what keeps them from making true discoveries that are true over time and repeatable is the fact that you aren't looking at it big enough. Um, but you can understand the human frailty element of this of like, well, then maybe that's because the human mind can't handle any more than what it's already digesting. Yeah. And just to say the the point you made about, well, it would be impossible for us to sort of model the brain, say, down at the at the level of atoms. That's absolutely true. Uh, but I kind of I call that like the null model, right, where we're in it's it all you're actually getting from the higher scale is that like, okay, well, it's a compression in theory, if you were unbounded by computational constraints, the best model of the brain would be down at the level of atoms. And that is what the theory of causal emergence says is actually untrue. There's other benefits than just the compressibility of the system you're looking at. And an example for, for, for neuroscientists might be, again, uh, if we think about where causation is the strongest, it might be that, the, at the level of causes and effects, at the level of their interventions, uh, they see a lot more bang for their buck um, up at the level of cells. And if they started actually fine-graining, you would actually be moving away from sort of where the causal structure of the brain is is in focus. Um, and in fact, the theory of causal emergence can take can be used to find good scales of analysis in complex systems, which is something we really need, particularly for biology, where we don't design these systems ourselves. They operate. Who knows exactly how they operate, right? It's very confusing. You might have picked the completely wrong spatial temporal scale to even try to understand this thing at. And that is also what I think happens in biology a lot. And one of the reasons biology is so confusing is that without a good understanding of emergence, without a good scientific theory of emergence, scientists generally just pick some random spatial temporal scale of the system and then sort of analyze that scale. But the problem might be that that scale that you're analyzing, maybe causation is 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 barely occurring at that scale. The actual causation is occurring at some other scale um, and, and and you're just totally missing it. So anyway, so I think I think theories of emergence, you know, what I do is I design theories. I mean, that's that's really my job description, um, like theories of uh, emergence should have a consequence. They should be useful. They're not just philosophical. They're useful that you have to be able to do something with them. So speaking of uh, your role as trying to come up with these, you know, theories that you had written a piece on memetics, which I, you know, I find very interesting when I first encountered the book, The Selfish Gene by Charles, uh, or not Charles, by Richard Dawkins, I remember being completely captured by this, by this description of memes. And it was well before it had become a part of popular parlance. And so in his book, Dawkins is saying, Let's try and name a discrete idea that that uh, somebody can have, and how that idea can replicate. It can be shared and um, with other people, and it can actually expand. So if I tell five people, and then those five people each tell five people, how that spreads out. And he made a comparison between memes and genes to be able to say, look, they replicate in the same way. They um, uh, uh, end up having disease issues or, or start having selection pressure. So some that allow you to do things that others didn't allow you, you know, kind of take on the exact same kind of properties. And I thought it was really interesting when you came in and you were like, yeah, 
Dawkins did say this and he coined the term, but this was not a new idea. And therein lies this weird uh, thing that's going on that how many ideas do we have that are actually new and not come from somewhere? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a great line I, I, uh, I like to quote involving this where it's some, um, you know, Egyptian uh, from like some, some, some ancient Egyptian from like 3000 BC. It's like one of the, or maybe like 2000 BC. It's like one of the earlier known fragments of writing. But in it, they're lamenting that all that is great has already been said and that there's nothing new under the sun and that there's nothing more to add, right? And like, that's how this, you know, scholar felt in like 2200 BC or something, right? Um, so, you know, this is a very sort of old, uh, old conception. I think you're, you're, you're referencing a piece, uh, sort of an exploration I did on my Substack about like who, who actually invented this idea of memes. And I think we can give credit for, for, to Dawkins because I do think that, um, we should have somewhat loose conceptions of credit in that who, not just who says it first exactly, but who says it best first, right? So if, 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 if you are the first person to present an idea in its sort of convincing totality and you give a very good argument for it based off of, you know, arguments that other people have, have not given, but maybe this idea is somewhat sort of scattered about and you could kind of reconstruct it if you pulled from a bunch of different texts, Right. It's like, well, no one did pull from a bunch of those different texts. So I've actually gotten, you know, a bit more uh, like like forgiving to to thinkers um, in that I, I think now we have to we have to pay attention to sort of the phenotype, not the genotype of ideas, even scientific ideas. And interestingly enough for Dawkins, um, you know, there is no good evidence for uh, m- the mimetic theory of of cultural evolution. I mean, Dawkins sort of speculates about this, but uh, the Journal of Mimetics, I think, closed its doors in like early 2000s because it never took off as a science because what's what's the unit of selection, right? It's not like with genes where you have a very clear unit of selection. You can track it. In fact, when I was in college, I tried to, um, I, I tried to, to track memes with with a professor where we this was before the internet basically um where we passed around like a document and had different classes change it and select which of the parts of the document that they liked or didn't like you know and the issue is that we ended up with a cool product but it's like what's what was the unit of selection like how, how can we put some math on that and we, and we and we couldn't figure it out and uh i think memes are the uh, an idea that's like it's like kind of true Right. Because, of course, you literally have the invention of meme culture with actual memes that get changed very much as Dawkins sort of described. But it, is it really like the explanation for for human cultural evolution? I think probably not. But it's a very it's sort of it's the perfect thing for a popular science book where like it's not true in sort of like the ontological, like academic way, or at least there's no good proof for it in that sense. But it's sort of like true-ish in that it's like a super useful frame for understanding the world. And we should sort of weight that highly. Like it, it's it's very nice to get a very useful frame, even if it's sort of like not actually precisely true. Yeah, I mean, for me, the when I had that concept of memes, and I, this was back when I was giving talks to ad groups and I would, I would stand up and I would put the letters M-E-M-E up there and I'd be like, does anybody know how to say this? And they'd be like, memes, memes, right? Like, this concept of memes in just that short amount of time, it's probably eight years ago that I was doing that 
Now, if you put that up and asked an audience that, they, they would think you were insulting them. They'd be like, what do you mean? Of yeah. course, everyone knows this is this is a meme. But it, it the, the power of being able to explain the world through that term is really strong. And it was a little bit earth-shaking to me when I was reading your article and you were like, yeah, but Dawkins, this, this, this wasn't really necessarily his idea and we can walk back. But then you also like let this be a, a larger kind of concept, which was where do any ideas come from and what is the value of having credit and publication? You know, for the non-scientist um, listener, why does credit matter so much to the scientific community and declaring who had what idea and, and kind of what were you pushing back on in, in this regard? Yeah, so it's 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 of supreme importance in the scientific community the notion of credit, um, and often for reasons that we don't want to talk about too much, because I think that it reveals the the humanness of science, and the fact that science is just as often driven by ego and the normal drives of human nature as it is by some sort of pristine love of the truth that, you know, goes beyond any monetary compensation, you know, or, or, or anything. It's like, no, like scientists are, are, are people, right? They, they try to have a certain code of conduct uh, and uphold certain standards, but they are just people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think within credit, it's actually something I, I think about a lot. And, you know, to be honest, I've never found a good solution of it because if you're too strict, then you really do hamper originality. Like, like you, you if, if you are too strict about accreditation where you're like, listen, if, if, if anybody said anything that even kind of sounds like this at any point in history, you have to find them and cite them. And if you don't, you're in trouble, right? It's like, okay, well, if you Which do Which is that, the experience of grad school, right? You are, <laughs> not, you are not allowed to have unique ideas if there's any, if there's anything in this review that's your idea, you failed. It's every single idea came from somewhere else, and you better have a little footnote that says exactly where it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that is often the case, um, and 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 so when you present anything in science, you're always extremely trepidatious. Like I put out an article. Um, uh, called the overfitted brain hypothesis, which is a hypothesis about why why we dream, why dreaming evolved, and um, you know I tried to to do as much survey of the literature in advancing what what I still think is basically a novel hypothesis, but um, you know at at various points people have been like, well, you know this author from twenty years ago has you know a paragraph that kind of looks a lot like that. Like to what degree should we? Um, not that it's at all identical, but if you like, if you compiled a bunch of like things that other people said at some point, maybe you could kind of stitch it together into something that would, that would resemble this. And uh, I, I personally think that that's too high of a standard uh, for, for people. Like I, I, you know, in that case, right. I think I have like 200 something citations in that piece. Right. It's like I went through the literature as much as humanly possible. And still, I missed a couple of things that looking back, I'm like, yeah, I wish I had kind of cited this or I wish I had cited that or something like that. So that's within the sciences. Right. And that's within someone spending a huge amount of time doing a huge literature dive into a subject. And you still feel like you're missing some things. Um, and so I think we have to we, we, we have to sort of balance uh, the idea that uh, you know, that, that, that if, that if anyone said anything like it, it's, it's not really original. 
with this idea of well, we we have to allow for production, we have to allow for con- for continuance, um, and you know, no one has really figured out precisely how to get that balance right. I mean, I think in in a way, we all make our own decisions. I've seen some academics go after other academics for plagiarizing them, but the plagiarism, you know, it's it's not at the level of the sentence. It's it's sort of at the level of ideas, but only if you're sort of magnanimous. You know, the, your degree of, of how magnanimous you are determines to what degree you think that this is is plagiarism. And I've seen this happen. And so in the end, I, I mean, I think we make we make our own decisions about uh, about this. And it's always very tough. It's always very tough. What do you think of uh, the current state of the scientific publishing right now? Yeah, I, I think it's it's um, the, the, the people in it are generally very good hearted people. The structure of the system is quite poor. I mean, it's extremely expensive to publish an article. It's hard to publish an article. I've I have some articles that will never be published because I just gave up. And it's always because there's some reviewer who's like, they're not even like this is wrong. They're like, I want to see this. And you're like, but I didn't do that. I did this other thing. And I can't, this all happened like two years ago. I don't remember the code that well. The amount of work it's going to take for me to go in and, and, and make this like change that doesn't affect the results or doesn't you know affect the thesis. It's just what you want to see. That amount of work is so vast that it's like not even worth it for me anymore. I think the best thing to happen to science recently has been preprints where you can put up a paper cheaply by yourself hosted and sort of um, get feedback on it. That's not like reviewers who are kind of making this like thumbs up, thumbs down decision, but just like feedback from the community on it. And, um, and honestly, some of the best science occurs via preprints. And this is before peer review, right? Like, so it's, 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 it's sort of, um, it's sort of shown me that, uh, you know, it maybe in some sort of ideal future there, I think there'll always be a place for peer review, but I'm not, I don't think of it as sort of like the secret sauce of science um, anymore, just due to the success of, of preprints. One of the ideas that uh, you put forward that I think is a little bit countercultural, at least to my audience, is that you think that the lab leak hypothesis with COVID is only 40% likely, meaning that you think that the, the 60% hypothesis is that it is um, a zoonotic event. It happened in the wet market or something like that. How did you come to those those numbers? Uh, well, well, you're you're also you know this is this is not it's not like um, something I've done a deep dive on, right? This is uh, I think that I think that that number is in a footnote in a recent essay of mine. So so very good eyes, um, you know. Uh, to, to to me, I I want to be clear that I have absolutely no idea. Anyone who claims that they have a good idea of what those probabilities are is mistaken. Uh, they don't. Um, if you, if you think it's 90, 10, one way or another, I think that you are wrong. So regardless of which way you think it goes, if you think it's 90, 10, uh, it's not 90, 10, there's, there's, it, it, it could legitimately be either. And if you look at the early emails, uh, Vanity Fair did a huge piece on this where they looked at Fauci's emails with a bunch of other people. You have a bunch of top scientists starting out thinking that a lab leak is, is more likely. Um, even those very same people who later came out and said that that was misinformation. Um, and, and so I think, 
you, certainly it, it could have gone other way. The, the reason why I'm, I lead more towards the natural is that I, I read a paper recently that was doing a lot of modeling work on um, origin points that sort of pinpointed the, the, the Wuhan wet market. Um, but it's all modeling. Right. So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of like as, as someone who has built very large scale models of the thalamocortical system of the mammalian brain, you can get a model to do anything you want, right? Like I could have, I could have gotten my supposedly biologically realistic set of neurons to sort of, you know, uh, spell out, you know, a name or something, right? Like it was just completely non-biologically realistic things with only very small tweaking of the parameters. So, so big modeling work is really, really tough. Um, and so at this point, that's all we have. So it was just because I thought that that paper was somewhat convincing that it, it sort of maybe update from like 60, 40, the other way, uh, to, to, to swap them. But yeah, for me, it's, it's just been very interesting because the people that have a different opinion than the lab leak have like this 90, 10 split. And I also know people in the lab. So I had Alina Chan on, I've had Matt Ridley on who wrote books about this, like, so, you know, and I can definitely be swept up in the uh, in the vast, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect where I'm like, oh, I read this book and now I know a few names and therefore I'm going to take this explanation given to me and I'm going to put that on the 90-10. I was actually just glad to see somebody putting out an idea that said, ah, I'm, I don't know, I'm 60% confident in this idea <laughs> because it does seem like all of the ideas are I'm 95% confident, I'm 99% confident and I'm with you. When you have that confidence level, you better have a smoking gun. Otherwise, I tend to want the opposite of whatever it is that you think. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be honest, one thing I am still and one thing, one of the reasons why I do have talked about the lab leak on my Substack, I was one of the first, the second, the second that Facebook lift, lifted their lab leak um, hypothesis kind of uh, uh, embargo um, and the second I thought that it was safe for me to even post something, I wrote a post called publish and perish. And it was about virology and about the likelihood of a lab leak. And that even if, even if, even if it ended up not being true, the fact that it could have been a lab leak, like very reasonably could have been a lab leak should mean that we should be incredibly, um, litigious and on it with contemporary viol virology, contemporary virology is a danger. Um, it is, is a very serious danger. And uh, because, because this easily could have been a lab leak and, um, and, but, 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 you know, I, I came up with that post, like literally like a couple weeks after it seems, you know, okay to talk about it online and that I was sure that my, my Twitter wouldn't get, and I, in the post, I don't even say, you know, this is, this is for sure true. Right. Like I, I say like, I literally could be, could go either way, but it, that, decision, I think will haunt the scientific establishment for a generation. The decision to say that it's illegal to discuss that this could have come from a lab when, when ver the very top scientists right from the beginning were saying that it was possible. And I think that that will haunt us for a generation because it really severed like public tr trust in institutions. Um, and I think like reasonably so, like I, I th th there was just, even as I said, I actually no longer think it, it more likely than not came from a lab. I think the other way, but the fact that it was outlawed for more than a year to even say that was absurd. Um, and, um, you know, yeah. And yeah. then we, and you end up missing the woods through the trees, which is 
Um, even if it wasn't a lab leak, the fact that it was so it likely could have been there's it's so easy. And now the entire world knows, hey, these bad things can happen. Existential risk can happen when you think not only that you're doing everything right and you think you're doing everything safe, but you even potentially think I'm doing good by doing this. And I, I read in, a, I think, a, in a different piece when you made the concept, you brought up the point of a lab leak for artificial intelligence. And that actually smacked me in the face because I, up until this point, had been like, um, oh, artificial intelligence getting out and getting us all. That's kind of like one of those, I'm a non-expert. It's easy for me to feel that there's danger in that in the same way that somebody's a non-expert in GMOs might be like, well, think about this crazy thing that could happen with GMOs. And you're like, yeah, but the likelihood that that's going to happen is so low. It's not real. But when you did the lab leak hypothesis for AI, I was like, oh, I can feel the way that I did about the virus leaking out. And now I can see this in AI and it makes me question it in a different way. I thought it was very important that you brought that up. Yeah, th thank you. I mean, I I I never expected in my life, um, you know, in, let's see, I was in, I was in college in the mid 2000s, never would have suspected in my life that we would have AI at the level that we have now. The recent, um, the recent progress in the last two, particularly just two years, just two years. Uh, just the art alone in the last yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. The, the, just Dolly. The when GPT Deep Dream first came out, I was like, I don't even know what the hell, the, the, who cares what this is. Yeah. But now you look at it and you're like, this is going to completely change the world. Pe this is no no question. People don't. I mean, the 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 human go champion uh i think his name is lee soto i'm probably mispronouncing that um he was beaten by uh maybe alpha go i forget the title of it but he was beaten at go only in 2016 i think so two two in 2016 there were still like computer games with simple rules that ais couldn't beat humans in now an ai can beat a human in any game with any simple rules like for, for for sure, um, I I think maybe a, a couple of instances of stuff like poker where there's bluffing uh, that can occur that has been difficult, but they're they're figuring that out now. Um, and you know the, the the I was even trying to think of complicated ones, right? Like a World of Warcraft, right? But yeah. you could play it with an AI that has the intuitive language understanding that would just just wipe the floor with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, they did it with StarCraft, which is a quite <laughs> quite a complex game. I haven't played the the new StarCraft, but I played the original StarCraft when I was a kid, and like it's quite a complex game. And the the AIs now will wipe the floor with the best players, and it's just because there's data available and people felt like doing it. They could do it with anything. I mean, anything that there's data available for. Um, and I I think people are, one, are sort of unprepared for this world. Um, I'm going to be having a piece coming out in two weeks about AI art, um, arguing that AI art is is not art. Like this is, we are dumb primates and, and AI art is the equivalent of like um, a, a rock that looks like a face. Right, like you could find a rock in nature that sort of looks like a face. In fact, there's a museum in Japan that collects rocks that look like faces, and they're you know you just need two holes and like a line, and they all look kind of funny, and they all look like a face, right? Uh, but there are no faces in the rocks, right? It's, it's it was not put there by intention or design. There was no consciousness uh, behind the design of this. Uh, similarly, AI art is just it's just faces in rocks, but 
that and 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 that's kind of terrifying that's that in the future bold. yeah I, are you sure like i mean no. for me my perspective is that uh, as long as you have somebody putting together a creation of words like um the a city of the undead well then ai can come back with something that does not look like uh faces in rocks it looks like a city of the undead that somebody would have taken the time to paint. And, and are you saying because there's a human addition into that by, by creating that phrase? No, I, I, I think it would be, it would be absurd. Like it would be absurd to say, for example, if I commission an artist, right. And, and for my Substack, I, I don't directly commission him. He, he basically takes a proceed of the total amount of the Substack, like a collaborator. Um, but I have an artist who's a, my resident artist for the Substack, and he and, does great. The brain massaging ones. <laughs> yeah, he brain. does. He's, he's like he's that. like brilliant. Like I have no idea how I lucked into him. Um, he's so good, and he does these artistic reactions to the drafts. But you know, when, when he's making the art, he is consciously thinking about something, right? So the the, the result is that the the transmission. If we think about art as like a transmission right? There's a communication between what he was thinking about in his own consciousness and the recipient of the art, right? It's, it's imbued with this. Uh, what I would never say is that I'm the real artist because, you know, I, uh, I, I said, well, what if we did, uh, what, what if we did a city of the dead for one of these pieces? And he's like, okay, I'll think about it. And then he thinks about it and he does all these things. And then he, he comes back with this. Then I say, look at this amazing art that I made. Right, this is incredible. I'm such a good artist. You'd be like, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. Like he, he, he's the actual artist, right? Um, and I think, given the minimal amount of input and the ease by which you can prompt these things, I think you're effectively an artist as a commissioner, right? Which most people would laugh at, right? If if someone was going out and commissioning artists and then, and and just giving them one sentence descriptions of what they wanted and then saying, look at all these paintings I made. Right. <laughs> Look at these beautiful hall of paintings I made. You'd be like, you're, you're kind of you're 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 missing something really important here. Right. Which is that you didn't make any of these paintings. And uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, Wal Walter Benjamin has this great essay called um, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Um, or, or maybe I'm, I'm I'm reversing some of the words in the title there. But this is supposed to be the update of that where you know, in mechanical reproduction, we really did lose something when it, when it comes to art, we lost sort of the originality of it. Right. It's like, like, uh, there's a sense in which the Mona Lisa is sort of lessened with every Mona Lisa postcard. Right. It's like, it's like, it's, it's the image just, just becomes, it loses its aura of uh, authenticity and originality. And here, what we're actually doing is severing art, severing art from conscious experience. So there's no consciousness behind any of this. This is, it's like unconscious art. Right. It's like a, it's like some, someone had a, a, an epileptic fit and wasn't conscious and sketched something would be the equivalent. And I think that there is kind of a horror uh, to that if if you're using it to replace artists. Now, if artists start using it as sort of like a like a more complex paintbrush where they're sort of testing out ideas and they're in this like relationship with it and the thing maybe can't do everything like it's, it still needs like a lot of the fine details or, or or basically it's just there to sort of be like an assistant then you're in a totally different world but if you're just if, if this stuff gets so good that i can just ask for, for 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 something and it gives me back a hundred amazing things and i just pick out one uh then i think that there's a deep sense in which that's that's sort of like the death death of art it's certainly the death of human art 
and 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 we shouldn't pretend that it that it's not huge corporations that is doing this, right? It's like you haven't replaced it's not it's not an AI, right? Like it's Microsoft, right? Like that that's who you're replacing the the, the artist with. So I there's something in the in the original description of what you're saying that I really react negatively to, but I think <laughs> it's probably a definitional I- issue because my mentor, the one that really taught me about art, used to talk we still does. He he talks about like one Art is something that makes you feel something. So the recipient doesn't need to know what message the art or the artist was necessarily sending. You just you're you're in front of it, whether it's a sculpture or a painting. And and just recently, Alex Dodge and I, um, who's an artist, uh, did um, did a podcast in VR, and you can tell that if you're not really standing in front of Mona Lisa or the the uh, Monet's lilies. It's not the same, even though it's just as big in this VR space or it's just as vibrant colors. It's not the same. But there's another side of it that Pete was always pushing me on was to say he was always saying he still does make friends with artists. Artists can see things about culture before other people can. That's why they're there. They are perceiving things that you either can't be put into words or can't be transmitted in a normal frequency. And if that's what you're saying about what you lose, there's this like severing of that connection. I completely agree with it. But but it's hard for me because as the subject of, or like as, as the subjective experience, as I'm looking at art, I can easily feel something that the AI put there because it's arresting. It captures my attention. It's got yeah. nudity or it's, you know, there's something about that. But I see the severing of the relationship between the artist as harbinger of the future or or you know somebody understanding what's going on in the current moment so i think it's actually both and i think the thing that you experience is basically the illusion of art so uh, as a simple example right there are plenty of things that make us feel things that we wouldn't describe as art um even things that are quite beautiful right if 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 you saw a a photo of the planet saturn right and you said that's beautiful that'd be correct but if you were like that's art one could say you're 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 saying something that could kind of be true, but we're implicitly thinking about some sort of intentionality, like like oh, it's art, like who who made Saturn, or what were sort of the teleological laws that led to Saturn being so beautiful? You seem to be basically implying that when you say something like that, or if you say this cloud is art, or something like that, you could say you're you're emphasizing how beautiful it is, but if there's really no difference between art and beauty then we don't even need the term art, right? We can just throw it aside, right? And and we should be very wary about um, about the definitions of words that are so broad that we end up not, that, that word not being used or not being meaningful because it's just the same as some other word. But then it's like, well, why did we have this word? It seems like we have it for a good reason. And what Tolstoy has is a modification of this. He has a modification of this principle where it is like the artist experiences something and then creates art and that art goes out and infects other people with that experience, or maybe almost like a mimetic modification of that experience. So it's like almost like the artist as a contagion of what a philosopher would call qualia, where the artist experiences something, and then it affects you, and then that it goes on to affect other, other people. But in AI art, it's totally one way. So it's, it's not actually spreading. It's, like, it's almost like a false consciousness. And I think that that does have functional... Uh, effects, um, and I think it will have functional effects on on art. Um, there's something in um, in movies called 
uh, imitating the temp. And imitating the temp is something that happens in the soundtrack of movies where um, it's, it's one of the reasons why movies sound so bad now often, which is that when the director first makes the cut in the movie, they take music from other movies and they put it into the movie. So like uh, they would take the movie, they have a, a soaring scene uh, that's, that's very high emotion. So they take a clip from Gladiator and they put it to Gladiator music. Right. And they do this. Right. And this is how they do the first cut of the movie. And then what happens is, is that the director grows really attached to the temp, the temporary score and tells the composer, imitate the temp, make me something that's as close to it to possible. Uh, and that's why movies often that's why like Jurassic Park sounded so good and so different. And now stuff just doesn't really sound that way, right? It's not distinctive. It's so just bland. And that's how you get these sort of scores through imitation. Uh, Tolstoy called this counterfeit art, which was just imitative art, right? And that's the worst instinct as an artist is to imitate, like don't imitate. Um, And that's what art schools teach you, which is why Tolstoy hated art schools. Um, And I think that what AI does is imitate the temp. It's, It's counterfeit art. It's just mimics. But something that purely mimics can't actually do the thing we want out of art, which is to give us something like original and interesting and something that's sort of like in, in a way based on experience. Um, and, and so I think, and, and it, the worst thing that might happen in my view, the worst case scenario, and I'm not saying this will happen, but worst case scenario is that AI art replaces a lot of working artists. And you sort of like have the same problem that you have with index funds, which is that if everyone's buying index funds and index funds are supposed to reflect the market, how can the market be uh, accurate, right? Because exactly (laughs) my point, exactly. That's how I feel about index funds. And I see your point, right? Right. Like if, if, if you have a bunch of people playing the tempo, which I mean, you already have this in pop music, right? There's a whole lot of, of computer generated pop music that gives you the beat. Maybe if you have the like, you know, high notes and low notes, and then somebody just comes in and mad libs through it. And you can see that they're like, I don't go to pop music to go find any inspiration anymore. I wonder if I would naturally just because I'm older. I, I I see your point, And I think that the biggest challenge about art is the demarcation problem. And we're all the way back at the beginning where we started, which is that that thing of like, if I say, well, it's something that arrests you. It's something that makes you feel something. You can say, oh, okay, well, then how would you distinguish that somewhere else? But as soon as I start to draw that line, then then we start arguing over that line as opposed to the wider thing. And I think that this this argument over AI and art will cause very serious uh, complications between people because the demarcation problem will be even fiercer than it is in science. It prob- probably wider and, and uh, because it's so hard and so subjective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not something that I need everyone on earth to agree with me uh, about, but I think that it's a really necessary opinion to, to get out there because I think that there is a huge risk from, uh, frankly, these corporations automating away human, human creativity. And I think the worst thing is not, it's much more likely that in that bad scenario, what happens is, is, is just that we get a lot of really sort of like mediocre, lukewarm art and we sort of drive out all the working artists and we end up with that. Not that we get this like super intelligent, amazing art that the AI, you know, is creating. I think it's going to be like, well, you know, I could either pay a real artist and get something and it'll be really good. Or I can, you know, pay Microsoft five bucks a month and get unlimited art 
And it's like mediocre, counterfeit, lukewarm art. But, you know, it's five bucks a month and I get as much as I want. And that to me is the more like kind of likely like bad, bad scenario. And, uh, you know, I, I think that people who work in AI um, very consistently are doing things that are really going to reshape our reality and they have almost no oversight. And they also, I think, um, um, have, 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 have sort of like the culture and, and morality all sort of on their side. And I think that if you work on AI, you should be much, feel much more like a nuclear physicist or something, right? Where it's like, you can be a nuclear physicist, right? But if you go to build atomic bombs, don't expect everyone to agree with what you're doing. Like what you're doing is so morally laden, right? And that's how I feel about AI is that we should, we should view this as a deeply morally laden and risky enterprise. And the people who get into it and do it shouldn't just be like applauded endlessly for every little thing that they do in the way that the culture, in my opinion, frankly, does right now. I think that they should be interrogated and they should be like, like put on the coals of like, is what you're doing actually good? Because what you're doing is unleashing, unleashing forces that are massive in scope and consequence. And but as a regular person, I mean, most people never encounter anyone. That, I mean, you're in kind of a rare air world, right? You know, people that are doing GPT-3, same as I do. Actually, the viewers of the podcast would absolutely know people that work on on a people AI, like people like Ken Stanley and Yosha Bach is in this world. But um, it's hard to imagine having, yeah, in our culture, applying any sort of negative label to people that are, that are doing a job. Yeah, we, we don't really have that. It's well, well, but I think we 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 do have it, right? We do. We, like I was just talking about virology being very dangerous, right? Like as I said, like if you're building nukes for the for the U.S. government, um, you should probably expect a lot of people to disagree with with how you're using that technology, right? Like that is super reasonable, even if you think maybe there's some reason to have nukes, right? Like even if you think that it's super reasonable to say that people should expect like some blowback for, for what they're doing. They're not doing a, a morally neutral thing. They're doing something that's really morally laden. And so far with AI, we don't have that. Everyone is basically still in the applauding phase. Um, and eventually that applauding phase will, will end, uh, hopefully. And that doesn't mean that we should stop all AI research or all AI research, researchers are bad people. It's absolutely not what I'm saying. But, uh, but I do think that there needs to be sort of like, uh, hey, what's, what's going to be the place for humans here? And maybe you should be really careful about what you, what you create here. And I, I mean that both from a cultural perspective, but also from an existential perspective. There's a lot of very smart people who, as you say, are concerned about the existential risk that comes from these technologies. Um, and I think that that should be taken very, very seriously. Um, and right now, sometimes it gets the feeling of like, a, it's, sometimes it can be like a bunch of rich kids with a bunch of money playing around, right? Not that they're grown up rich kids, but like a bunch of people who are now, you know, effectively billionaires putting a bunch of money into this space and people have sort of have unlimited funds and everyone's applauding. And it's like, we, we need to have a different take on AI by the time that this stuff gets dangerous. We need to have a much more skeptical, a much more hard-nosed take on AI uh, by the time this stuff really gets gets kicked off. Yeah, and maybe have the Dune approach where you just, it, not only does everybody just askew it, but it's not even talked about. It's just like, hey, we, didn't, we don't allow this. That's my solution, so, but I, I, I've, I've tried to, to pitch that and uh, you know, not that many people are willing to go along with it, but maybe to some degree. You just had a son. And uh, he's nearing on a year old. How are you planning to educate this young, this young lad? 
Great question. Um, I, I originally, I, I myself went to public school. Um, it was not a great experience. I learned nothing. Uh, but, but you can't say you learned nothing. You're at Tufts University. You have a PhD, and you're all you know, yeah, like. I I was very lucky in that I grew up in my mother's independent bookstore, so I had a massive advantage in that sense. But um, like an educational advantage. But I, I really firmly believe that almost everything I I, I know or talk about, um, I learned mostly outside the structures of academia. Right? I learned from reading books or reading papers or or some of like the more high level academic stuff, like going to conferences or doing journal clubs together or stuff like that. But that's that's very unusual and very like high level stuff. It's not sort of part of standard academia. And my opinions on this, I've I've, I've sort of become maybe slightly more and more radical over time. Um, particularly because I, I recently wrote um, a piece called Why We Stopped Making Einsteins on the decline of genius in our modern times, which I do think that there's there's at least a good anecdotal and then like a little bit of data-based evidence that uh, we just don't have sort of the great geniuses of the past anymore. Maybe that's because ideas are getting harder to find. I certainly think that ideas are getting harder to find. Um, but also... I think that there have been changes to the nature of education. And one of those changes is the decline of the aristocracy and the way that the aristocrats used to educate their, their children, which was mainly through hiring private tutors who would come and live with the child and effectively educate them for hours one-on-one. -on -one. And it's the ideal learning environment to have governesses and from when you're very young to be privately tutored, uh, you know, until you're 15 um, and you go off to, to college then. And by the way, the college systems at those times, there was, there was entire decades where there were no lectures at Cambridge University or Oxford University. It was all tutors. So it was all one-on-one -on -one learning, even in the colleges. And we simply don't have that anymore. And one reason we don't have it is that it's deeply uh, inequitable, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's insanely inequitable. This was, this was something that was reserved for the very rich and most of the great sort of minds throughout history were people who were raised in this, in an aristocratic manner. I mean, like certainly I think it could be argued the majority of them before maybe about 1800 or so on, um, were, were raised in this manner, but there's, there's almost no one who's becoming a really high level intellectual in the 1600s who doesn't have some sort of, you know, aristocratic background, like let's say in France. And, uh, you know, the, this, this decline of one-on-one -on -one tutoring, which we know from studies to be the most effective method of education, in a sense, we've solved education. We know, like education researchers, we know what is the most effective. We have the studies to prove it. It's one-on-one -on -one tutoring, but it's an unacceptable answer because it's so unequal, right? Like you can't go into, you know, inner cities and 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 educate everyone via one-on-one -on -one tutoring, right? Like there's just no money for that. So so everyone sort of has to search for other answers. But if we take that answer seriously, um, that then we should think that you know there there is a sense in which we know what the ideal learning environment is. And now that everything is moving online um, and, and that those sort of forces in our, in our society are much more prevalent, um, I used to be quite sure that all my kids would, you know, go through sort of the normal school system. And now I'm much less, less sure and, and think, well, maybe there's some sort of cheap contemporary way to do something like aristocratic tutoring uh, with kids and, and give them sort of a structured 
environment. And I'm not saying that everyone should do this or needs to do this for, for, for any reason, but um, I think it's something that I've, I've become much more interested in just literally since writing this, this, this essay, this article exploring this hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I have found your your point on the private tutors to be deeply insightful. So I have been deep diving into everything from Waldorf schools to Montessori. Um, I've toured so many schools in the St. Louis area, like way, way, way beyond what a normal parent probably should. And in large part, it's not because I'm like, oh, I, I only want the best for my daughter. Of course, I I do. But my curiosity has been like, just to your point, and I had not taken it to the distance of getting to a private tour was, you know, all the research shows it doesn't really matter what you do here, because they're all the outcomes are all the same. And they're all the same, whether you're doing the European system or the US system. And the, yeah. and so I have been um, boggled, like my mind has been baffled by this. And I certainly have types of schools that I like better than others. But it had never crossed my mind one-on-one. I I have toyed with and even approached teachers to say, how much would it cost for you to do three students? And I'm just going to have you like do like these micro pods because for the amount we spend per student in the United States on education, it can't be that far away from individual private tutors. Yeah. That's, that's the crazy thing is that, um, you know, depending on sort of how it's, how it's set up, it's, if you think about, well, private school is 60, thousand a year now right if you're lucky if you're lucky now yeah yeah so it's like okay so that's a that's a salary now if it's 70 80 thousand a year i think i just saw northwestern university was 82 now for its tuition so private school tends to kind of mirror college so so maybe some private schools are up in the 80s um at this point that's you know that's a that's a salary um I, i have no idea to what degree I'm, I'm actually going to do this or, or how this is, this is, this is going to be done. But I really think that of, of all the generations to attempt it, I think my generation is a good one because we finally moved to doing so much online and even like the work from home, uh, shift that has occurred during COVID, um, and the education from home that's been occurring. Um, I, I think that now is the time to maybe try something, some a little bit more of a of a radical experiment, and um, you know, and I also think like you know, looking back in, in an ideal case, like that's that's how many of us would like to have been raised, right? Like in this sort of ideal fantasy of having a governess, beautiful governess, teaches you languages from a young age, right? And then like some hotshot, you know, young young tutor. Oftentimes, these were very famous people, like Bertrand Russell's tutors many of them were, were quite famous uh some were like the, you know the graduate student of lord kelvin right and things like that um and and uh you know that that is i i do think that there's very good historical evidence that that's the ideal learning environment but it's just very hard to replicate nowadays and uh when you think about uh things like television for your son how much uh, screen time has your son had in in total any idea so far none except sometimes when i'll i'll have something on and he realizes that i have something on and he like comes over and i um he's definitely seen the tv on you know he sees us on laptops and computers right there's no way sort of around that he certainly doesn't have his own devices um and won't for a very long time if i have anything to say about it um but um so i don't think that just like seeing the tv does any there's certainly there's no good evidence that just you know having 
have, having a TV on occasionally in the background if they're not just like sitting there watching it really does anything to them. Um, um, I, I'm very concerned about it because I think that, um, you, you know, that, that period of time, particularly as you get older in like maybe six to, to 10 in terms of the amount of imaginative play that children should be getting should be very high. We know that, um, that imaginative play correlates to like anything, everything good you can, you can think of. Right. So the more, the more imaginative play that kids get, the, the better. So I actually don't think that screens themselves are that negative. I think it's more so that it replaces, uh, other time. So, so, so if I had to guess, um, you know, my, my guess would be that a lot of some of the negative effects of screens comes from just simply replacing time where the kid would be doing, you know, imaginative play uh, somewhere else by themselves. Yeah, the the best. Um, so Violet has seen virtually no screens other than like whatever she incidentally sees. But like we've never even watched TV around her. I don't watch that much TV mm-hmm. to begin with. But but the the thing that I have observed is that um, she demands to go outside all the time. And I think a lot of parents, like when we've had friends over or even family, like Violet, it could be like uh, sleeting outside, cold and wet. And like she has no knowledge that that's not what she wants to do. So if we'll put a coat on her and let her go outside, that she is like every ounce of of, uh, of soul in her is pushing to get outside. And uh, I think that that's been the biggest benefit from not having TV is there's no she doesn't use her her uh, limited little girl like I'm going to make demands um, power to get the TV on. Uh-huh. She uses it to go outside, and that seems to be like a, a cycle. And and I think that that's you know for me it's less about is she going to get addicted to it or any of those things. It's that I don't want her to want yeah. to see what's on there, and that's yep. been the most important thing. Yeah, I've I've like my my suspicion is like because sometimes I'll I'll look over and he's like looking at what I'm doing, but he almost always gets bored and looks away because I'm like typing something, you know, and it's just, it's just not actually that interesting. I don't think just seeing like the light from the screen uh, is going to do anything. And then also, um, in fact, I have an essay coming up on this, on the intrinsic perspective. Um, um, One thing that I've actually gotten into recently in terms of, you know, occasionally having something on in the background is, uh, is esports, which I think are very interesting. I was never into esports before this. Um, uh, These are people pe- playing video people games. People playing video games professionally. There is a whole universe. I didn't even I discovered it like last year. I was like, what is happening here? There's like casters, there are teams, people get signed. There's like drama about, you know, who's the who's the best. It, it, it's exactly the same as the regular sports world. But what I like about it is that um is uh that most of the people who do it are also sort of personalities and you actually get to know them a lot better than sort of like the blank-faced uh, players um, who uh, you never really get to know um, well for regular sports. Like I don't think any of us really even know Tom Brady well, despite the fact that he's the most famous sports figure. I mean, I, I think we would all sort of be shocked if we privately spoke to Tom Brady and he would he would come off as very different. Um, but that that's very untrue for this esports world. But my point being here is that in esports, it's not like a talking head, right? It's like someone playing a like a computer game or something. And so they, like kids just, they, they, they can't even see anything interesting in it. They don't even look at it. 
Like, yeah, because it's, it's not, if it's, a, if it's a head, like if it's, you put on CNN, if you put on CNN, even the youngest baby will be like, what is this huge talking head? You know, that's that's in front of me. Yeah, faces. I mean, kid, yeah, kids second, are just so pretty. But if it's like little faces. figures, you know, moving around, on CNN, they're, they're like, whatever, I'm done with this. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. So a little like, secret me, to watch sports is that you, can, you, you can't watch regular sports, but you can watch esports because they'll, they'll just get so bored of it. <laughs> My uh, my observation is that Violet is now she's um, 22 months, so almost two years. And um, I was just telling my producer, Ben Anderson, like one of the great joys about parenting that nobody tells you about is the moment when your child sees something that you didn't notice. And uh, we've had a couple of experiences like the other day, she starts yelling, turkey, turkey, turkey. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I look outside, there's a wild turkey in our yard, right? And so like, you're like, okay, she saw that. I was looking outside at the same time and couldn't see it. And uh, and this morning she saw a turtle. And like, I don't know that I have ever found a turtle out in the wild. And <laughs> yeah, she's like, hey, look at here, this is a turtle. And for me, like, there's something truly, I don't like human that you couldn't experience if you've never been around a child that you raised from nothing you knew that she did not have the word for turtle before we taught it to her exposed it to her and then she found a turtle there's like a circle to this whole thing that is impossible to explain to other people you can only experience it yeah there there's no greater there's a famous uh, philosophy of mind uh, thought experiment called Mary the color scientist and in the thought experiment it's a neuroscientist named Mary who knows everything about color vision but has been raised in a black and white room and the question is does she know what seeing color is like because she knows all the physical facts about the brain that involve color vision so if, if the physical facts of the brain determine the color experience then she should understand color but does she learn anything new is she like oh wow that's red Right now, I've now I've seen red for the first time, and the intuition is is that she does experience color for the first time and has like a reaction to it, and that it's that's not covered, right? So it's this it's an anti-materialist argument, but in general, the difference between experiencing something and then having sort of like heard about it, right? There's that gap, and I think parenting is one of the biggest one of those the the places where that gap is the largest, where you just you ha- you basically you experience it, but it's so actually difficult to put into words and to express it. And you would think that that is absurd. You would think that everyone has a good understanding of what it means to be a parent because we've had so long to tell people about it and to communicate with it. And every single person is like, oh, this was like so much more sort of like interesting and evocative. And there's all sorts of stuff in here that I wasn't expecting at all. And it's like, okay, so clearly we're just sort of dumb primates, right? Um, well, and I, so this goes along with a, with a game that I play with Violet. So from the very early age, I have a, like an acute sense of smell. I can like read a recipe and you can add spices in and I can accumulate what those spices will taste like, but I'm not sure I can evoke the smell of something. And so I knew I have this plant called a Korean spice viburnum, which is this beautiful smelling plant. And it's got two different smells. In the front end of the smell, it's like perfume. And in the back end of the smell is like a spice, like nutmeg or or cinnamon or something like that. So it's two different like – and before the flowers came in, I was trying to explain to Violet way beyond, you know, words that she could use. Can I put a smell into words such that she would not be surprised by how it smelled? 
And uh, this has been a wonderful exercise because it has forced me to, you know, like it's very difficult to backwards engineer a smell. Like what does it smell like? Right. I can only give you analogies just like, oh, it tastes like chicken. Right. Like and then to be able to put that into words and then to like see her experience these things. It's been a very um, it's almost like meditation where you're like. I know I can't get there, but the act of trying is probably the most valuable yeah. part of it. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that exercise. So, Eric, well, you are the most prolific writer I know. I'm sure you have a thousand things to do today. I'm so excited that you uh, took the time uh, to come read it. If people wanted to uh, read your Substack, um, find out more about you, where would they go to do that? Yeah, so if you, if you just type in Eric Coel, E-R-I-K-H-O-E-L, into Google, uh, my Substack should be one of the first results. It's called The Intrinsic Perspective. It's the best way to, to stay in touch with me. Um, it's, good, it's also a great community. Uh, over there. And I also don't bug people. I put out one essay a a week. So you get one email a week. um, And I really try to respect people's time and and only put out sort of uh, stuff I'm really confident in. So um, that's, that's how you can find me. It's brilliant stuff. Any of the articles we've talked about today or any of the forthcoming ones, they come out there. I have never read anything that I have not been like, huh, that's an interesting, oh, that's surprising. I, I find it a wonderful thing to grapple with. So Eric, thank you so much for your time. We'll have you back on soon. Thank you so much, Vance. It's been a pleasure.